0: Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today I'm lucky to be joined by two guests, Erica Biagini and Lucia Ardovini. Erica is an assistant professor in security studies in the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. Her area of expertise lies at the intersection of Islamism, gender, and politics. Lucia is a research fellow in the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, and her research focuses on current trajectories of Islamist movements across the MENA region. In addition to both being on MELG's editorial board, Erica and Lucia recently edited a MELG special issue, um, which we'll be discussing today, and the issue focuses on uh, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood after the 2013 coup. Erica, Lucia, Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you for having
0: us, Ezra. No, it's great to have you on the podcast. And I've I've really been looking forward to to this discussion since reading your issue. Um and I was hoping maybe we could start with with each of you providing a little background to your research and what led to your interest in, in the Muslim brothers and, and Muslim sisters. Uh, Lucia, would you like to start?
2: Sure. Um, I was actually thinking about this before we started recording, because it's almost been a very fluid process for me. It all kind of started in 2011, when I was doing a lot of work on revolutions and on the theory of revolutions, and then the Arab uprisings happened. Um, And that really piqued my interest, and it kind of went together with me really wanting to look into social movements and activism, and it, to me, it looked like the Muslim Brotherhood and what was happening to the movement, the politicization and the rise to power, kind of really fit into those interests of mine at the time. I never thought that I was going to end up doing a PhD and a postdoc <laughs> on the movement, but here we are today and that's, that's how I got here.
0: Awesome. And, and Erica, would you like to share a little bit about your own oh. journey?
1: Yes, yeah, so I have to say, I was also reflecting on this, and it is it is a very challenging question, to be honest, because it's always hard to dissect personal from academic reasons of why uh, somebody ends up reinvesting so many years of their life into a certain topic. My, my research on the Muslim Sisters in particular has been going on for nearly 10 years now. It actually began at the time of my master, believe it or not, I was uh, working under the supervision of Professor Francesco Cavatorta, who is also a member of the uh, Mel editorial board. Francesco at the time was very curious about women's political participation in Islamist parties, and he sort of challenged me to uh, challenge my views because... To me, there wasn't evident contradictions of why women would support parties that you know usually promotes uh, laws that restrict uh, women's freedom. So it was. It started as a challenge. Uh, I never seen myself as a gender scholar or as a feminist uh, scholar, and um, I ended up spending ten years of my life on this. And I have to say, uh, the challenge is there. I have really embraced it.
0: Uh, that's a great story and a great supervisor to have to have supported you through it.
1: Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so so out of these similar or perhaps complementary research interests, how did you end up working on the the Melg special issue together? How did that sort of come about?
1: Um, and that's a funny story, actually. Um, uh, Lucia and I, um, of course, we, we, were, we were both working on very similar issues, trying to understand how the Egyptian revolution and then the period of transition and, and the counter-revolution since 2013 was affecting uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. I was uh, very much focused on the activism of uh, the female wing of the movement, the Muslim Sisters. Uh, Lucia, of course, was uh, focused more on the, on the party itself, the organization, which is dominated by male members. Our, our focuses were also a little bit different because I have conducted most of my research in Egypt, whereas uh, Lucia was uh, working with the diaspora at that time uh, very much. And um, it really happened that uh, we met at a conference, actually, in 2018 at Brismes, and we did realize that basically our questions were, were very similar because we were trying to understand where all these events were leading the movement. And somehow both of us felt that we had a partial vision of, of uh, what was happening inside the movement itself because of... The migration of a lot of uh, members uh, from Egypt into foreign countries after two thousand and thirteen. So both of us were we felt we were missing a piece of the puzzle uh, that could answer many of the questions that we were looking at, and we felt that our research joined together could really complement our vision, and that's how uh, we ended up working together and then actually on the special issue.
2: Yeah, and I would also add to the the funny part of that story: the the special issue was actually born out of me flying to Dublin to stay with Erica for two weeks where we literally and I mean literally locked ourselves up in her office for two weeks working all day every day really trying to bring our data together our ideas together really challenging each other intellectually like I feel like I learned so much about the Brotherhood and Islamism during those two weeks and and at the end of it we had the blueprint for
0: the special issue, I guess. Oh, what a wonderful way to start. I, I think that's a, a more enjoyable route to putting together a special issue than probably most come together.
2: Well, it worked. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm really keen to to dive into that discussion, to the sort of heart of the the, the special issue and the post-Coup Brotherhood more broadly. Um, but before we get into that, um, Erica, would you like to maybe provide a brief outline of the sort of historical events against which the special issue is set? You Know just to provide a little bit of background to, to the discussion today,
1: yes. Um, usually I leave to Lucia the, the, <laughs> the task of providing broad overviews because as something we de- uh, we discovered by working together, and that each one of us have very different uh, skills. <laughs> but I'll uh, I'll try to be <clears throat> to provide an overview and be brief. Um, so obviously, both of our researchers started. Much earlier than the two thousand and thirteen uh, coup, but uh, what we really wanted to focus on at that time was to understand how uh, the so-called failure of the Brotherhood political project was really affecting was really affecting the membership. So the Brotherhood has existed within the Egyptian political context for over for nearly nine decades now. It has always been has always had a very conflictual relationships with every regime, but really it has tried to engage in uh, institutional politics uh, much more forcefully since uh, starting the idea from the 1970s, let's say. So when Egypt uh, experienced uh, a popular revolution on the wave of the so-called Arab uprisings in January 2011, the Muslim Brotherhood was really the best-placed movement to to say uh, to, to make considerable electoral victories. It had a strong organization. It had been engaging in politics for so long, and that's what it happened. Really, it, it had a political advantage against uh, all other opposition. So the Muslim Brotherhood, ended up being in power, for a very short period of time the leadership made several mistakes political mistakes also recognized by the membership but just to make to cut it short basically a, a, a combination of political mistakes and the inability of the movement to really keep the streets on their side along with counter-revolutionary forces represented by the regime the, old, the older power forces of uh, mubarak really contributed to to his demise from power and so, um, in 2013, basically after the Muslim Brotherhood was removed from power uh, through a, a military intervention, the membership fell under one of the strongest wave of repressions in the history of the movement. So it wasn't the first time, but this regime has really demonstrated to be willing to go at any length uh, and and use whatever is necessary to really eradicate the organization from. Uh, from practicing politics in the country and also abroad. Uh, and this is one of the main differences uh, from this wave of repression to previous ones, for instance. Um, and so this is where we really focused on. Our our research really wanted to focus on how uh, this perceived uh, political inability to, to pursue a, a pro- politics and a project. And that movement has been working for so long affected... Uh, its political ideology, members, and the view of the movement itself.
0: Uh, Thanks very much for that background. That's really helpful. And and now, the special issue really focuses in on the sort of post-2013, post-coup repression uh, that the Muslim Brothers faced. Um, But as you mentioned, um, it's not the first time that the movement has faced repression. I was wondering, Lucia, could you maybe... Um, highlight some of the differences between the repression previously faced and what the movement has had to contend with uh, since the 2013
2: coup? Yes, of course. I think the the main thing to keep in mind is that this repression came after the first time that the Brotherhood had actually been in power, the first time that they'd been in government, which was something new for the movement it's something that really took them out of the comfort zone and if we look at the history of the movement we see that the brotherhood as historically thrived under repression it really grew its popular base and its ideological message on being a movement in opposition in opposition a movement under constant more or less repression. So that's kind of the very first difference that comes to mind is the fact that this comes after the counter-revolution came after the so-called failure of the political project. There are also, I will say three more factors that make this very different from what the Brotherhood has experienced so far. The first one is the fact that previous repressions have always really targeted The leaders of the movement, like these are the people who were either put in prison several times under both Nasser and Mubarak, or were forced to leave the country. What we see and after 2013 is the the repression under Sisi targeted everyone from members to supporters to their family, and we see that in the very indiscriminate waves of arrest. So that was a big difference, and yet again it was that made a kind of a new dimension for, for the Brotherhood. Um, another element is the dimension of exile. As I was saying before, exile is not necessarily new to the Brotherhood in the sense that some of its leaders have been in exile before and the Brotherhood is an international organization in that sense with different twin um, organizations, I guess, around the globe. But this time, the members as well and their families were completely forced to relocate, those who could escape Egypt is. So this adds another layer to the current wave of repression, another layer of novelty, and another challenge in that sense. And the third element that I think, the and last element that really makes this different is the fact that the current wave of repression has caught the brotherhood in the midst of very deep and very ideological internal divisions, which is forcing the movement to very much reconsider its hierarchical structure, its message as it is, and even the way in which the movement is managed, because it is a challenge to maintain a movement alive under repression, but even more so when the movement is in exile and when the diasporas are spread across different countries, mostly Turkey and and the UK. So we see, for example, the... There are external challenges, such as the one that are posed by the regime, by the fact that the Brotherhood was designated as a terrorist organization, and so on. But what really makes this repression new and incredibly significant, as we highlight in the special issue, is the dimension of exile. I would say.
0: Yeah. So so that brings us sort of to the to the heart of the special issue, and I'd really like to come back to the to the members in exile, but. First, I was wondering if you could dive a little bit more into those challenges that the movement is facing and and how is the Brotherhood responding to them?
2: Yes, of course. Uh, I will begin this by saying that as we show in the special issue, one can argue that the Brotherhood is in the midst of one of the worst internal crises that the movement has experienced so far. But when we're looking at the way in which the movement is responding, I will say there are two different Um, perspectives or two different trajectories if you want one the first trajectory is the the official stance of the brotherhood which is very much working to portray itself as a united movement as a movement that is in exile but nonetheless is as control over its members as ideological unity as a plan as a strategy to go against repression and then there is the internal dimension where we really focus in on the special issue, when we look at all the internal debates, some of them really old, some of them have been in the movement for, for decades, and some of them new, they have been brought back to the fore by by, by the, the current situation and the current repression. And Internally, we see the Essentially, the core principles over which the Brotherhood is constructed and the core principles that made the the Brotherhood thrive under oppression for so many decades are being questioned. There are questions by the members themselves, both current and former members, I should say, about hierarchy, about the tanzim, about ideology, about the balance between politics and religion, preaching and dawah and the actual Willingness and desire to institute an Islamic State in the end. So, there are a lot of um, very deep questions, and I think that despite this effort to portray a united front, everyone who looks at the Brotherhood a bit more closely can see that they are struggling uh, to respond to the current wave of repression, and there are very, very deep internal divisions here.
0: That's really interesting, and I, and I wonder, Erica, where where do the Muslim sisters come into these debates? Um, how active are they in these sorts of discussions happening within the movement?
1: Yes, thanks, Ezra. Um, this is a very important question because um, I should have said at the start one of the reasons that you know working on uh, the Muslim sisters and understanding how they they their gender ideology or political thinking evolves uh, within the situation. It, it, was, it is also very challenging and important because women have always been somehow sidelined within not only the movement itself, but also by scholars who have worked uh, on the movement. So to me, it's very important to highlight their role because at the end of the day, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has managed to thrive as a political organization and also as a religious one because of so much work that women have put into the movement for decades. So uh, women are, as I mentioned, traditionally can very marginalized within uh, within the organization. And one of the... One of the, uh, the points that is usually highlighted about uh, uh, women, but also uh, to some extent also about uh, the main members, is that they somehow uh, do not really engage with the ideology of the movement in terms of trying to change it or participate or contribute to its development. However, uh, what I've been noticing among the sisters in, uh, since the last few years I've been working with them and, and researching their activism is that women do really take on those debates. The, the, the very same debates that are uh, taking place within the organization are taken on by women, however, within different spheres because, of course, uh, due to their uh, being excluded from political offices of the organization Usually, those debates takes place in very informal spaces, uh, spaces that women only actually uh, uh, occupy. So uh, there are lines, that, there are points that are that reflect uh, the broader debates of organization. When we look at how the sisters interpret the, the performance of the Muslim Brotherhood in power, or uh, the usual calls for, uh, or the usual refusal of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood to actually allow for uh, greater pluralism or the way the Brotherhood has administered uh, the activism of the, within the ranks of the organisation. However, when it when it comes to women as well, what, what I see it's also a lot of reflection on the actual uh, gender element of, uh, of uh, their own experiences. Because it is true that the Muslim Brotherhood has always been a very hierarchical organization. It has been uh, established on principles such as secrecy, loyalty, and obedience, and therefore members who were challenging core principles and ideas as upheld by the, by the senior leadership have always been excluded. But women have been excluded at, to, us, to a greater extent because of the, the very conservative gender ideology of the movement. So when women embrace discourses around pluralism, uh, particularly nowadays um, they they do contribute to the general debate of the, of members that are dissatisfied and so they call for a greater leadership role uh, the ability to have a greater voice within the political decisions that are made within the movement. But there is a small cohort, and it, it is small, and I don't know whether it is small because of my ability to reach uh, uh, women or because uh, they're just, you know, ideas that are taking place at the moment and built on their experiences of the revolution and the aftermath. Um, there are also ideas that do challenge the very core ideology of the brotherhood when it comes to gender and challenges the, the very core, uh, idea of a patriarchal family over which uh, the movement sets itself and establishes identity politics. And I think that this is one of the most novel ways in which particularly the younger generations are taking stock of their experiences and when and when we look at how, and I mean this is an effect also on how they perceive uh, the culture, the institutional culture of the organisation itself. It's not just about how they perceive gender relationship relationship within the family, but also how they end up also um, challenging those very same patriarchal values uh, that the leadership of the movement has maintained within uh, the, the organizational ranks, and I think this is the most um, telling, uh, uh, let's say, novelty of what I can be what I've been observing lately.
0: Yeah, thanks, Erica, and I, and I wonder, you know. As patriarchy and hierarchy are being challenged in the movement, as you both mentioned, um, what role are, are individual members playing in sort of driving um, changes to brotherhood, ideology, and to, to strategy? And, and I guess, what does that tell us about structure and agency within the movement? Uh, and I know this speaks quite closely to, to your article, or directly to your article, Lucia, so maybe you'd like to jump in there first.
2: Yes, sure. I think this is this is a crucial point that, that we need to discuss, actually, and, and we do all cover it to an extent within our articles in the special issue as well. First of all, I think it's important to say that the struggle between structure and agency within the movement is not new. This is something that has been with the organization for quite a long time and has come up routinely specifically during the first decade of Mubarak's rule when the organization started to be involved politically although as independent candidates rather than an official political party but this this struggle between structural agencies really come back to the fore after 2013 um, and there's a few reasons for that the the first reason as I was saying is the is the unfamiliar aspect of everything that is going on now the fact that the, the Brotherhood and its members are finding themselves in a in exile in, in a context in which, you know, relationship of powers that have been established for a long time are being challenged. So when we're looking at the, the main debates and that are currently happening and the role that members are playing within it, I think a crucial point is what Erica was talking about earlier is this core principle of listen and obey that has taken that has been core to the brotherhood for for decades it's this the first one that is being challenged by all and something that is happening as well in terms of individual members is that a lot of even the hierarchies within the membership in itself so between people who are maybe more conservative or people who are more reformist and so on those are being rigid as well like we see members and former members coming together, working together to reform the movement, even when they don't specifically want to call it reforming in itself, I think we can see that there is internal change that is happening. So what individual members are doing is they are reclaiming more space within the movement. Their commitment to the movement is different. We see people who are completely committed to the movement's survival, but they want the movement to survive as it's always been. And then we see people who are committed to more than the, the movement's survival. They want the movement to survive and adapt to the new circumstances and thrive. And these are the members that I specifically look at in my research and in, and in my book, looking at you know, the struggle between agency and structure. Individual members are breaking a lot of the impositions that have been put on them for decades. A very telling one, which might seem so small to someone who's outside this kind of social movements, is the fact that members are pursuing, uh, you know, individual development. Like we see so many people who, for decades, have asked their superiors within the organization the um, the permission almost to enroll themselves in university to study politics, to study social sciences, to really work on, you know, the Brotherhood manifestos, to really make the Brotherhood into a political actor, and that is something has always been precluded to them or for them Uh, and these people now in the diasporas there's so many of them who are enrolling in university we see people who have been medical doctors for their entire lives taking a bachelor's in political science or international relations they are working on themselves and on their knowledge and on their skills in order to then move the organization forward and this is something that it's Again, as I said before, it can seem so small, but it's actually a very big act of internal resistance and internal defiance. And this is, it's like a domino effect. You know, you see women coming into the picture and reclaiming more space and claiming positions that they've never held before. And those positions being granted to them to an extent for the first time, we see that the youth and very old conservative members are coming together to work on specific issues. So I would say that this is a, a process of internal change. There is a lot of resistance, not only from the leadership, the historical leadership, but there is a lot of resistance from certain parts of the membership themselves. But the, the very old struggle between structure and agency has never been as central as it is now, I would say.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And and thanks for pointing out the, the 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 structure agency debate is not a new one. Um, and in your co-authored intro to the special issue, you note that there's there's sort of a mix of old and new debates that are currently playing out. And I wonder, Lucia, if it, if it would be possible to sort of highlight which of the debates are old and which are the sort of newer discussions that are taking place.
2: I think, uh, as I was saying, some, some of the issues that are in some of the debates that are dividing the brotherhood today are old. In the sense of you know the struggle between structure and agencies, it's we have seen it come up through the decades quite routinely. Another one that is as a big attraction, specifically within the diaspora in Turkey, which is also primarily where the organization is now being um, coordinated from, I guess you could say, is the balance between dawa and politics. So the balance between preaching activities and political activities this is old and it's going two ways as always there's those who think that the brotherhood should go back to its roots and be you know a social movement a religious movement and focus on preaching and focus on this ideological message and there are those who instead think that yes the political project failed it failed for various reasons one of them a main one is that the membership didn't have enough and the leaders didn't have enough skills actually govern, they didn't have the expertise that was needed, hence why people are going back to university to retrain. But they think Mm -hmm. that, you know, this, this schism between preaching and politics has always been there and the brotherhood should continue to do both once it's ready to get back into power. But this is leading to new debates. One, one new debate that the membership in itself is involved in for, for the very first time is how to respond to repression. What is the strategy here? Do we remain an organization in exile? Do we focus on the global dimension? Or do we focus our efforts on fighting against the counter-revolutionary regime? This is a question that the movement never really had to ask itself first before.
0: Great Thank you and, and Eric, would you like to add anything um, from a gender perspective on this?
1: Yes, so the the struggle women's struggle for uh, greater opportunities and, and greater leadership within the Muslim Brotherhood movement um, has really come to light um, around the 2000. but the reality it is it, or generating from the 1990s really when the Brotherhood began to engage more forcefully in, in, um, in elections and institutional politics. Um, at that time, uh, really what was uh, driving women's demands were very much a call for uh, women's possibility to uh, elect their own leaders, to have a voice within the organisation, given the contribution that they've always given to, to the movement, really. So one of the things I do in my work is really trying to trace uh, the, the gender ideology of the sisters as evolving along with the Muslim Brotherhood political project and the so-called reformist wing that really took hold of the movement uh, since the 1980s. And at that time, uh, because the focus was very much into uh, emerging into politics, women's demands did not uh, challenge the patriarchal structure of the movement or the the institution of the patriarchal family over which the movement uh, established its own identity politics so that those calls were really for for greater political participation and for the possibility to not only be a part of a political campaign as voters and collective voters but also you know engage uh, as candidates in elections themselves um, So these debates haven't gone, and haven't gone because the Muslim Brotherhood continues to be a movement, um, and now it's very divided, but it continues to be a movement whereby the the senior leadership continues to promote values uh, such as uh, obedience, and hasn't really changed the approach uh, of how to manage the, the, the organization. However. Within uh, this, this movement of the membership for, for greater agency, for greater space within the organisation, women uh, are also part of it. And so the, the gender debate within, within uh, the new generations has been changing considerably. So women are not only advocating anymore for greater political role in the organisation, for uh, greater voice and, and possibility to make to participate to the political decisions that the movement takes, but as I mentioned before, only in passing, um, they are the the experience of repression, the the very the very particular difficult difficult circumstances which women are experiencing since 2013, has really uh, created a moment of reflection, uh, a moment in which women are taking stock of okay, what have we done? Uh, how have we contributed to, to this movement so far, and what? what our efforts have led us to, and what are really the mechanisms that are keeping us somehow excluded. So the bottom line is that women have been uh, supporting to a very great deal uh, the political successes of of the brotherhood, but those contributions haven't really translated into women's ability to shape the organization and so it's no longer just a moment for uh, claiming a greater participation, which the lady do doing it uh, in practice uh, within their own spheres uh, and as part of the, indiv- of the agency of uh, the individual members. But they're actually challenging core values such as the patriarchal family and identity politics over which the movement is established on. As any other Process of revolution, uh, gender struggles are brought from the street to the home, and within within the, the family sphere, uh, women are, have emerged under this current circumstance of repression as heads of the households. Uh, they have, whether they wanted or not, they have been playing. Uh, I mean, many have achieved economic independence for the first time now, whether under constraint because you know the male members are no longer there, or because they have realized that when they had the opportunity to really contribute uh, to the movement after the revolution, they were lacking skills at the moment where we wasn't willing to to allow women to pursue. So all these these struggles it really open, open a, a kind of intersectional lens uh, uh, from women to really understand where are all the situations, how, how basically... Patriarchal constraints affected them from the different spheres of society uh, uh, and the family and the movement. So it is really an intersectional analysis that women are putting forward, which uh, pushes a gender discourse that is no longer established on entering politics at the condition of the movement, but you know, that translates from, from the politics to the home and from the home to the to the organization.
0: That's really interesting. And, and are we seeing any sort of exodus or exit of Muslim sisters from the movement at this point? Or are we mostly sort of seeing intra movement debates and fractures playing out?
1: Um, this is a very interesting question. Uh, Lucia and I have been really uh, working a lot and, and really trying to put our heads together to understand the very same process of exodus from, from the Brotherhood. It is very complicated because, first of all, the Brotherhood is not that sort of organization where you go and ask for membership, right? So it is membership is granted by the movement to the members according to whether the movement thinks that recruiting that member is going to bring it some advantage, right? So sometimes um, women, but even brothers, brothers and sisters, do not really know whether they're members of the organization or not anymore. Uh, They have been recruited unilaterally, and they sometimes, you know, the brotherhood used to expel and make this official when it it expelled members. But under the current circumstances, this is sometimes no longer possible. So uh, many women find themselves, you know, uh, not knowing whether the brotherhood considers them members or not anymore. And this is just to say that uh, women at the moment, like brothers, live in very different circumstances some of them do belong to the organization they're still within the structure of the organization uh, and they do try to to put some kind of reform to reform the organization from within but there are others who can who do uh, bring forward different projects and do have these discussions uh, or put in practice uh, actions that would have never done before thinking that they're still part of the movement but in reality they don't know whether they will be or not or whether the organization recognizes this other members have for instance uh, other sisters do simply say to uh, belong to the movement but they do not abide to the orders of the organization anymore and uh, and this is a very <laughs> uh, this is a very interesting phenomena because uh, it really uh, tells you, the extent to which the very same identity of the movement is being challenged when you have members who they, they claim they're belonging to an organization but they behave completely opposite than what the organization would have wanted or or has done or requested for so long. It, tells, it really is an indication of a, a wave of change or how identity becomes a contested uh, element of, of the current situation. And so, sorry, I've I've had a very long answer to a short question, but yeah, uh, women are doing it, are are advancing these debates and practices within the movement and outside the movement and in informal uh, spaces that they can, you know, have some sort of control. And I think that as far as these different actions aimed at reforming the individual, rethinking the, the ideology of the movement, rethinking their own relationship to the movement, By the part of women who believe to be still part of the brotherhood, it's already an act of change. It's a way of changing organization
2: already.
0: No, thank you. That's really interesting. And And, and, can I
2: I jump in? Of course. That because I think that like a lot of the points that Erica was bringing up uh, are are very important because they touch on different things. Like she mentioned identity a few times, um, Mm -hmm. and this process of of exodus and of members either leaving or not being sure of what their position within the movement is, it's, it's, it's crucial and it applies to both brothers and sisters. Something that we see specifically with the diaspora, is the emergence of individual identities and subjectivities, which is part of the exile and the diaspora process, but it very much goes against the idea of the brotherhood as an all-encompassing movement that relied on collective identity as a unifying force for so long. And the process of leaving the brotherhood, which a lot of members did, both before and after the coup, by the way, a lot of members left in 2000, between 2012 and 2013 because they weren't happy with the way in which the Freedom and Justice Party was created, the way in which like, they were running the country, and then a lot of members left as a consequence of the coup. But this process, is, it's, it's incredibly complicated because of the fact that the Brotherhood is more than just a religious movement, than just a political movement. Like Its members are tied together by biological links you know, like you marry within the organization. There's people who who talk about building their houses in order to have specifically to have a room where members can congregate, you know, for like weekly meetings and, and prayers and so on. So the process of leaving the Brotherhood it's it's is an ideological one and it's, and it's an intellectual one for sure. But it's also it's also a very personal one and it's almost pushing people to have to rethink about who they are as as an individual like who are they if they're not a brother or a
0: sister that's really interesting and and i'm glad that you brought the diaspora back up because i wanted to dig into that a bit more um i was hoping lucia that you could sort of outline some of the contours of the of the muslim brotherhood diaspora at this point and and what's its relationship with the movement um, and its role in the sort of debates that, we, that we've that we been talking about that are sort of currently raging within the organization?
2: Yes, this is the, the million-dollar question <laughs> that I've been trying to to find an answer to for almost four years now. To um, the best of my abilities, I, I can tell you that the, the main diaspora at the moment is scattered between Turkey, uh, the UK, Sudan, and Qatar, mostly, at the moment, the Turkey and the UK are kind of the main points of powers from which the organization is being coordinated. And even there, it's interesting to see how there's different hierarchies, like specifically, uh, a lot of members who now live in Turkey uh, refer to those... In the uk as the pr office of the brotherhood like these, uh this tend to be in a mocking way i should i should be very clear um it's, it's not a compliment but i mean the members who are in the uk that the general guide is allegedly currently in the uk these are the people who are the official face of the organization and even in a diaspora context they are the ones who are engaging with international government with international institutions they are the ones who are promoting the image of the Brotherhood internationally and trying to really fight against, you know, the designation as a terrorist organization and so on. While members who are more on the ground and specifically in Turkey, as far as my research goes, those are the ones who are really engaging with the with the nitty-gritty of daily life, you know, of what me and Erika were talking about in terms of rethinking of themselves as members and rethinking their position within the movement while also adapting to to being in a diaspora, which is you know an incredibly challenging process not only uh you know bureaucratically but also emotionally as well so there's even there there's different layers that we're looking at
0: uh, that's really interesting research and and sort of leads into the the last question that is. You know, hoping to dive into today, and and that's really to ask, you know, where do we go to from this? You know, how do we move forward uh, with research on the brotherhood? Do we need sort of a, a significant shift in the way that we approach research on on the organization?
2: Yes, I, mean, I I can think of of many, and and I should preface this by saying that me and Harita haven't discovered the the Holy Grail or, or the philosopher's stone. Uh, there are people who came before us but what we're really trying to do with the special issue and this is also a red thread throughout all of the contributions is that we really argue for the need to look at the brotherhood as a, not as a monolithic organization but really looking at the members themselves like let let them speak let's focus on their emotion on their experiences on how you know their personal perspectives are affecting and have affected in the past the organization in terms of politicization in terms of ideology in terms of strategies in terms of moving forward we really believe that the focus on the individual is crucial and this is something that goes for i mean all islamist movements really after after the arab uprisings because the circumstances of a lot of these movements have changed and it's very much the case that you gain the real insights when you focus on the individual level. And in the case of the brotherhood what's also happening is that there have always been there's always been a core group of people or a core group of members who were always very willing to different extents to speak to researchers and they kind of became the the usual voices that were featured in a lot of research. But now, but now that's changing. Now people, members and ex-members from across all the organizational and generational spectrums are not only willing to speak to you once you gain their trust. It's obviously a, a long process because they've been to some incredible trauma over the past few years. But they, they really want to talk to you. It's almost like when they're talking to you, they're working a lot of these questions out for themselves. You know, it's, so even that is changing. I think that, that absolutely needs to be taken into account.
0: And Erica, would you like to add anything on there? I mean, both about the the Muslim Brotherhood in general, or specifically about studying or researching the Muslim Sisters. Yes.
1: Thank you, Ezra. I would like to add some points here, particularly um, particularly with regard to women so um as i mentioned before uh, women have always kind of been marginalized not only within the movement but also within the literature so i would encourage uh uh really uh a future future generation of scholars who can take women as as full agents of, uh, of of the movement and as full political actors because much of my scholarship has been built uh, to to really giving a voice to to the women of the movement, but also to trace the diversity that there is and exists uh, among the women themselves. So, um, very similar uh, differences that we can observe among the male members are a play also within the women, uh, and it's it it is often categorized as a generational difference, which of course is there. But it's not all because uh, ideas and 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 cross collaborations take place. So um, women are a very uh, diverse pool of individuals with different ideas, and they are very creative. They are being very creative in the ways in which they are trying to bring change and uh, to the to the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamic movement. They are uh, really investing uh, their own personal uh, uh, efforts into it. So. I think that it, there needs to be a greater focus into uh, trying to understand how women are doing this uh, uh, from, uh, from a uh, comparative perspective. And particularly, I would compare you know, the situation in Egypt with women in the diaspora, because, of course, uh, uh, the constraints, the structural constraints are different. Uh, within Egypt, women at the moment are really invested into trying to survive on a daily life. They they are the one left behind to to take the burden of, of this repression. Uh, they are trying to uh, you know they're, they're looking after the families of of brother prisoners. They are looking after the children. They're looking after the home. So they they're facing also a very heavy repression, which kind of limits uh, uh, the possibility for activism. Um, although they are active, they continue to be active. However, abroad, uh, in in diaspora communities, women are taking a much uh, stronger role, but they they, they enjoy more opportunities for professional and personal development, but they also enjoy opportunities to enter political cross-collaborations. And because the the division between um, uh, the movement do play uh, not only in Egypt, but also in the diaspora, in the diaspora, women have also more opportunities to uh, enter and take uh, institutional offices within the new Islamist organizations that are the, being established from offshots of the movement. And so, I think that uh, you know, future research really needs to to kind of adopt to include women into the into the conversation, the, the younger generations, but also trying to put to some com- uh, comparative uh, uh, analysis of how. Um, the different geographical context allow um, different forms of activism and female participation in the movement.
0: No, that's great. And I'm sure a whole batch of PhD students are very much appreciating those insights. Uh, (laughs) I hope. And and I think that's probably a good uh, place for us to leave it today. So, Erica Lucia, thank you so much for joining me. It's really been very interesting to speak with you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: (laughs) And thank you for everyone for listening in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Lawn Governance Podcast.